Okay. Welcome back. This is... God, I did this the exact same thing last episode. What episode number is this? This is episode 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, technically 8 if you count the special episode, 7 if you don't. But this is ep- this is part 2 of the Invisible Man, or Invisibility But Racist series, I guess you could call it. And I will be reading chapters th- 6 and others of, I don't know how far I'm going to go. I said last time that I would go cha- five chapters. I just re-listened to the end of that. I It has been too long since I've read this book, so I had to remember, okay, what's going on. The accents probably won't be the same. There may not even be accents. Who knows what's going to happen. But, you know, it'll be fun. And I hope you enjoy. So I guess we'll start off. Uh, last time, I don't remember what happened. Invisible, uh, a, ma- a man shows up who seems to have this air of mystery around him that everyone's really confused about and really suspicious of. Robbery happens, and they can't seem to see the person who's robbing them. Uh, We know at this point that our main guy is invisible because of things. He's probably a chemist of some sort, but we don't really know his backstory or anything like that. But otherwise, I guess we shall start with Chapter 6, The Furniture That Went Mad. Now it happened that, in the early hours of Whit Monday, before Millie was hunted out for the day, Mr. Hall and Mrs. Hall both rose and went noiselessly down into the cellar. Their business there was of a private nature, and had something to do with the specific gravity of their beer. They had hardly entered the cellar when Mrs. Hall found that she had forgotten to bring down a bottle of sarsaparilla. Is that right? Sarsaparilla from their joint room. As she was the expert and principal operator in this affair, Hall very properly went upstairs for it. On the landing, he was surprised to see that the stranger's door was ajar. He went on into his own room and found the bottle as he had been directed, but returning with the bottle, he noticed that the bolts of the front door had been shot back, and that the door was in fact simply on the latch. And with a flash of inspiration, he connected this with the stranger's room upstairs and the suggestions of Mr. Teddy Henfrey. He distinctly remembered holding the candle while Mrs. Hall shot these bolts overnight. At the sight, he stopped, gaping, then, with the bottle still in his hand, went upstairs again. He rapped at the stranger's door. There was no answer. He rapped again, then pushed the door wide open and entered. It was as he expected. The bed, the room, also, was empty. And what was stranger, even to his heavy intelligence, on the bedroom chair and along the rail of the bed, were scattered the garments, the only garments so far as he knew, and the bandages of their guest. His big slouch hat, even, was cocked jauntily over the bedpost. As Hall stood there, he heard his wife's voice coming out of the depth of the cellar. With that rapid telescoping of the syllables and interrogative cocking up of the final words to the high note by which the West Sussex villager is wont to indicate a brisk impatience, George, you got what you want! And that he turned and hurried down to her. Janny, he said, over the rail of the cellars. "'Twas the truth that Enfrey says. He's not in the us room he sent. Oh, wait, what? He's not in us room he ain't. And the front door is unbolted. At first, Mrs. Hall did not understand. And as soon as she did, she resolved to see the empty room for herself. Hall, still holding the bottle, went first. If he aren't there, he said, his clothes are. And what he's do- what is a... God, this accent. What he's... What is a... What is he doing without his clothes, then? Tas a most curious baseness. As they came up the cellar steps, they both, it was afterwards ascertained, fancies they heard the front door open and shut. 
but seeing it closed and nothing there, neither said a word to the other about it at the time. Mrs. Hall passed her husband in the passage, and ran on the first upstairs. Someone sneezed on the staircase. Hall, following six steps behind, thought that he heard her sneeze. She, going on first, was under the impression that Hall was sneezing. She flung open the door and stood regarding the room. Of all the curious, she said. She heard a sniff, close behind her head, as it seemed, and turning, was surprised to see Hall a dozen feet off on the topmost stair. But in another moment, he was beside her. She bent forward and put her hand on the pillow, and then under the clothes. Cold, she said. He's been up this hour or more. As she did so, a most extraordinary thing happened. The bedclothes gathered themselves together, leapt up suddenly into a sort of peak, and then jumped headlong over the bottom of the rail. It was exactly as if a hand had clutched them in the center and flung them aside. Immediately after, the stranger's hat hopped off the bedpost, and described a whirling flight in the air through the better part of a circle, and then dashed swiftly at Mrs. Hall's face. Then as swiftly came the sponge from the washstand, and then the chair, flinging the stranger's coat and trousers carelessly aside, and Raff laughing dryly in a voice singularly like the stranger's, turned itself up with its four legs at Mrs. Hall's, and seemed to take aim at her for a moment, and charged at her. She screamed and turned, and then the chair legs came gently but firmly against her back, and impelled her and Hall out of the room. The door slammed violently, and was locked. The chair and bed seemed to be ex executing a dance of triumph for a moment, and then abruptly, everything was still. Mrs. Hall was left almost in a fainting condition in Mr. Hall's arms on the landing. It was with the greatest difficulty that Mr. Hall and Millie, who had been roused by her scream of alarm, succeeded in getting her downstairs and applying the restoratives customary in these cases. "'Tis spirits,' said Mrs. Hall. "'I know tis spirits. I've read in the papers of them. Tables and chairs leaping and dancing. Take a drop more, Jenny,' said Hall. "'Twill steady you.' "'Lock him out,' said Mrs. Hall. "'Don't let him come in again,' I half-guessed. "'I might have known, with them goggling eyes and bandaged head. "'Never going to church of a Sunday.' and all they bottles. Warn, it's right for anyone to have. He's put the spirits into the furniture. My good old furniture! Twas in that very chair my poor dear mother used to sit when I was a little girl. To think it should rise up against me now. Just a drop more, Jenny. Your nerves are still upset. They sent Millie across the street through the golden five o'clock sunshine to rouse up Mr. Sandy Wadgers, the blacksmith. Mr. Hall's compliment and the furniture upstairs was behaving most extraordinary. Would Mr. Wadgers come round? He was a knowing man, and Mr. Wadgers was very resourceful. He took quite a grave view of the case. Armed, armed, if that weren't witchcraft, was the view of Mr. Sandy Wadgers. You warrant horseshoes for such gentry as he. He came round greatly concerned. They wanted him to lead the way upstairs to the room, but he didn't seem to be in any hurry. He preferred to talk in the passage. Over the way... Huckster's apprentice came out and began taking down the shutters of the tobacco window. He was called over to join the discussion. Mr. Huckster naturally followed over in the course of a few minutes. The Anglo-Saxon genius for parliamentary government asserted itself. There was a great deal of talk and no decisive action. Let's have the facts first, insisted Mr. Sandy Wadgers. Let's be sure we'd be acting perfectly right and busting that there door open. A door on bust is always open to be busting, but ye can't on bust door once you've busted it. Oh, what a brilliant line. I've never heard anything so amazing. 
And suddenly, and most wonderfully, the door of the room upstairs opened of its own accord. And as they looked up in amazement, they saw descending the stairs the muffled figure of the stranger, staring more blackly and blankly than ever with those unreasonably large blue glass eyes of his. He came down stiffly and slowly, staring all the time. He walked across the passage, staring, then stopped. Look there, he said, and their eyes followed the direction of his gloved finger, and saw a bottle of sarsaparilla hard by the cellar door. Then he entered the parlor, and suddenly, swiftly, viciously, slammed the door in their faces. Not a word was spoken until the last echoes of the slam had died away. They stared at one another. Well, if that don't lick everything, said, oh, God, that was terrible. Well, that don't lick everything. <laughs> well, if that don't lick everything, said Mr. Wadgers, and left the alternative unsaid. I'd go in and ask him, ask him about it, said Wadgers to Mr. Hall. I'd demand an explanation. It took some time to bring the landlady's husband up to that pitch. At last, he rapped, opened the door, and got as far as, Excuse me, go to the devil, said the stranger in a tremendous voice, and shut the door after you. So that brief interview terminated. Chapter 7. The Unveiling of the Stranger The stranger went into the little parlor of the coach and horses about half past five in the morning, and there he remained until near midday, the blinds down, the door shut, and none, after Hall's repulse, venturing near him. After that time, he must have fasted. Thrice he rang his bell, the third time furiously and continuously, but no one answered him. Him and his go to the devil indeed, said Mrs. Hall. Presently came an imperfect rumor of the burglary at the carriage, and two and two were put together. Hall, assisted by, by Wadgers, went off to find Mr. Shuckleforth, the magistrate, and take his advice. Hall, assisted by Mr. Wadgers, went off to find Mr. Sh That's not even it. Hall, assisted by Wadgers, went off to find Mr. Shuckleforth, the magistrate, and take his advice. No one ventured upstairs. How the stranger occupied himself is unknown. Now and then he would stride violently up and down, and twice came an outburst of curses, a tearing of paper, and a violent smashing of bottles. The little group of scared but curious people increased. Mrs. Huckster came over. Some gay young fellows were splendent in black, ready-made jackets and piquet paper ties, for it was Whit Monday, joined the group with confused interrogations. Young Archie Harker distinguished himself by going up the yard and trying to peep under the window blinds. He could see nothing, but gave reason for supposing that he did, and others of the Ipping youth presently joined him. It was the finest of all possible Whit Mondays and down the village street stood a row of nearly a dozen booths, a shooting gallery, and on the grass by the forge were three yellow and chocolate wagons, and some picturesque strangers of both sexes, putting up a coconut shot. What is a coconut shot? No, it's like a coconut is spelled weirdly. It's co, co, and then there's an a, and then a nut. I'm curious what this is. Coconut shot. It's a traditional game found in the size Oh, okay. So it's like... Uh, let's see. Wikipedia, tell me the answers. Uh, you throw wooden balls at a row of coconuts balanced on posts. Typically, you buy, th like a player buys three balls, and then when each of the coconuts is sexually knocked off, they win a prize. The word shy is, in this context, is meant to be toss or throw, not shy as in they are shy. Good to know. Where was I? Uh, both sexes putting up the coconut shy, right. The gentlemen wore blue jerseys, the ladies white aprons, and quite fashionable hats with heavy plumes. 
Wadger of the Purple Fawn, and Mr. Jaggers, the cobbler, who also sold second-hand ordinary bicycles, were stretching a string of Union Jacks and Royal Ensigns, which had originally celebrated the Jubilee across the road. And inside, in the artificial darkness of the parlor, into which only one thin jet of sunlight penetrated, the stranger, hungry we must suppose, and fearful, hidden in his uncomfortable hot wrappings, poured through his dark glasses upon his paper or chinked his dirty little bottles, and occasionally swore savagely at the boys, audible if invisible outside the windows. In the corner by the fireplace lay the fragments of half a dozen smashed bottles, and a pungent twang of chlorine tainted the air. So much we know from what was heard at the time, and from what was subsequently seen in the room. About noon, he suddenly opened his parlor door and stood glaring fixedly at the three or four people in the bar. Mrs. Hall, he said. Somewhat, somebody went sheepishly and called for Mrs. Hall. Mrs. Hall appeared after an interval, a little short of breath, but all the fiercer for that. Hall was still out. She had deliberated over this scene, and she came upon holding a little tray with an unsettling bill on it. Is it your bill you're wanting, sir? She said. Why wasn't my breakfast laid? Why haven't you prepared my meals and answered my bell? Do you think I live without eating? Why isn't my bill paid? Said Mrs. Hall. That's what I want to know. I told you three days ago I was waiting a remittance. I told you three days ago I wasn't going to await no remittances. You can't grumble if your breakfast waits a bit if my bill's been waiting these five days, can you? The stranger swore briefly but vividly, Nar, nar, from the bar. And I'd thank you kindly, sir, if you'd keep your swearing to yourself, said Mrs. Hall. The stranger stood, looking more like an angry diving helmet than ever. It was universally felt in the bar that Mrs. Hall had the better of him. His next words showed as much. Look here, my good woman. Don't good woman me, said Mrs. Hall. I've told you my remittance hasn't come. Remittance indeed, said Mrs. Hall. Still, I dare say, my boy, you told me two days ago that you hadn't anything but a sovereign's worth of silver upon you. Hello from the bar. I wonder where you found it, said Mrs. Hall. That seemed to annoy the stranger very much. He stamped his foot. What do you mean, he said. Then I wonder where you found it, said Mrs. Hall. And before I take any bills or get any breakfast or do any such things whatsoever, you got to tell me one or two things I don't understand. And what nobody don't understand, and what everybody is very anxious to understand, I want to know what you've been doing to my chairs upstairs. And I want to know how it is your room was empty, and how you got in again. Them as stops in this house comes in by the doors. That's the rule of the house. That and that you didn't do. And what I want to know is, is how you did come in. And I want to know. Suddenly the stranger raised his gloved hand, clenched, stamped his foot, and said, Stop! With such extraordinary violence that he silenced her instantly. I'm going to pause here. I apologize. I'm changing from Irish to uh, full-on Texan. And I don't know what's going on. And I apologize for accents. But I'll just keep going with whatever. You don't understand, he said, who I am or what I am. I'll show you. By heaven, I'll show you. Then he put upon his open palm over his face and withdrew it. The center of his face became a black cavity. Here, he said. He stepped forward and handed Mrs. Hall something at which she, staring at his metamorphosed face, accepted automatically. Then, when she saw what it was, she screamed loudly and dropped it and staggered back. The nose. It was a stranger's nose pink and shining rolled on the floor. Then he removed his spectacles, and everyone in the bar gasped. He took off his hat, and with a violent gesture toward his whiskers and bandages. For a moment they resisted him. A flash of horrible anticipation passed through the bar. 
Oh my God, said someone. Then off they came. It was worse than anything. Mrs. Hall, standing open mouthed and horror-struck, shrieked at what she saw and made for the door of the house. Every one began to move. They were prepared for scars, disfingerments, tangible horrors, but nothing? The bandages and false hair flew across the passageway into the bar, making a hobbledehoy jump to avoid them. Every one tumbled on everyone else coming down the stairs. For the man who stood there, shouting some incoherent explanation, was a solid, gesticulating figure up to the coat collar of him. And then, nothingness. No visible thing at all. People down the village heard shouts and shrieks, and looking up the street saw the coach and horses violently firing out its hum humanity. They saw Mrs. Hall fall down and Mr. Teddy Henfrey jump to avoid tumbling over her, and then they heard the frightful screams of Millie, who, emerging suddenly from the kitchen at the noise of the tumult, had come upon the headless stranger from behind. These ceased suddenly. Forthwith, everyone all down the street, the sweet seller, the coconut-shy proprietor and his assistant, the swing man, little boys and girls, rustic dandies, smart wenches, smocked elders, and aproned gypsies, began running towards the inn, and in a miraculously short space of time, a crowd of perhaps forty people, and rapidly increasing, swayed and hooted and inquired and exclaimed and suggested in front of Mrs. Hall's establishment. Everyone seemed eager to talk at once, and the result was babble. A small group supported Mrs. Hall, who was picked up in a state of collapse. There was a conference, and the incredible evidence of a vociferous eyewitness. Oh, bogey! What's he be doing then? Ain't hurt the girl, has he? Run at him with a knife, I believe. Oh, no, he'd, I'd tell you. I don't mean no manner of speaking. I mean marred without a head. Nonsense! T'was some conjuring trick. Fetched off his wrap, and he did. In its struggles to see, in through the opening of the door, the crowd formed itself into a straggling wedge with the more adventurous apex nearest the inn. He stood for a moment. I heard the gal scream, and he turned. I saw her skirts whisk. He went after her. Didn't take ten seconds. Back he comes with a knife and in his land, and a loaf stood just as if he was staring. Not a moment ago, went in that there door. He, I tell you, he ain't got no head at all. You just missed him. There was a disturbance behind, and the speaker stopped to step aside for a little procession that was marching very resolutely towards the house. First, Mr. Hall, very red and determined, then Mr. Bobby Jaffers, the village constable, and then the wary Mr. Wadgers. They had come out armed with a warrant. People shouted conflicting information of the recent circumstances. Ed or no head, said Jaffers. I got a restin', and restin' I will. Mr. Hall marched up the steps, marched straight to the door of the parlor, and flung it open. Constable, he said, do your duty. Jaffers marched in, Hall next. Wadgers last. They saw in the dim light the headless figure facing them, with a gnawed crust of bread in one gloved hand and a chunk of cheese in the other. "'That's him!' he said all. "'What the devil's this?' came in a tone of angry expostulation from above the collar of the figure. "'You're a damn rum customer, mister!' "'Okay, so—give me a sec here, I'm trying to figure out. "'Okay, so I'm going to have to reread some of these things, because it's really messed up. "'They, like, added two book chapter pick pages, 68 and 69. Nice.' Uh, after 65, but then if you go past it, you go back to 66, and then 67, and then 68. So, and then 69 again. So I'll have to skip to what happens in 65. Ah, it's the, it was the part where Constable, uh, Constable Jaffers goes in with, uh, and then Hall and then Wadgers, and they saw our headless man with his crust of bread in one hand and his chunk of cheese in the other, like a legend. What the devil's this? came in a tone of angry expostulation from above the collar of the figure. 
You're a damned wrong customer, mister, said Mr. Jaffers, but head or no head, the warrant says body, and it's duty is duty. Keep off, said the figure, starting back. Abruptly, he whipped down the bread and cheese, and Mr. Hall just grasped the knife on the table in time to save it. Off came the stranger's left glove and was slapped in Jaffers' face. In another moment, Jaffers, cutting short some statement concerning a warrant, had gripped him by the handless wrist and knocked his and caught his invisible throat. He got a sounding kick on the shin that made him shout, but he kept his grip. Hall sent the knife sliding along the table to Wadgers, who acted as a goalkeeper for the offensive, so to speak, and then stepped forward as Jaffers and the stranger swayed and staggered towards him, clutching and hitting in. A chair stood in the way and went aside with a crash as they came down together. Get the feet, said Jaffers between his teeth. Mr. Hall, endeavoring to act on instructions, received a, a sounding kick in the ribs that disposed of him for a moment. And Mr. Wadgers, seeing the decapitated stranger had rolled over and got the upper side of Jaffers, retreated towards the door, knife in hand, and so collided with Mr. Huckster and the visitor Morton Carter, coming to the rescue of law and order. At the same moment, down came three or four bottles from the chiffonier and shot a web of pungency into the air of the room. I'll surrender, cried the stranger, through, though he had Jaffers down, and in another moment he stood up panting, a strange figure, headless and handless, for he had pulled off his right glove now as well as his left. It's no good, he said as if sobbing for breath. It was the strangest thing in the world to hear that voice coming as if out of empty space. But the Sussex peasants are perhaps the most matter-of-fact people under the sun. Jaffers got up and also and produced a pair of handcuffs. Then he started. I'll say, said Jaffers, brought up short by the dim realization of the incongruity of the whole business. Darn it, can't use them as I see. I, I can see. The stranger ran his arm down his waistcoat, and as if by a miracle, the buttons to which his empty sleeve pointed became undone. Then he said something about his shin, stooped down, and seemed to be fumbling with his shoes and socks. Why, said Mr. Huckster, suddenly, that's not a man at all. It's just empty clothes. Look, you can see down his collar and the linings of his clothes. I can put my arm. He extended his hand. It seemed to meet something in midair. And he drew back with a sharp exclamation. I wish you'd keep your fingers out of my eye, said the aerial voice in a tone of savage expostulation. The fact is, I'm all here. Head, hands, legs, and all. The rest of it. But it happens I'm invisible. It's a confounded nuisance, but I am. That's no reason why I should be poked to pieces by every stupid bumpkin and nipping, is it? The suit of clothes, now all unbuttoned and hanging loosely upon its unseen supports, stood up, arms akimbo. Several other of the men folks had now entered the room so that it was closely guarded. Invisible, eh? said Oxter, ignoring the stranger's abuse. Who ever heard of the likes of that? It's strange, perhaps, but it's not a crime. Why am I assaulted by a policeman in this fashion? Ah, that's a different matter, said Jaffers. No doubt you're a bit difficult to see in this light, but I got a warrant, and it's all correct. What I'm, what I'm after ain't no invisibility. It's burglary. There's a house been broken into and money took. Well, and the circumstances certainly point. Stuff and nonsense, said the invisible man. I hope so, sir, but I've got my instructions. Well, said the stranger, I'll come. I'll come, but no handcuffs. It's a regular thing, no handcuffs, stipulated the stranger. Pardon me, said Jaffers. Abruptly, the fingers, figure sat down, and before anyone could realize what was being done, the slippers, socks, and trousers had been kicked off under the table. Then he sprang up again and flung off his coat. Here, stop that, said Jaffers, suddenly realizing what was happening. He gripped the waistcoat. It struggled, and the shirt slipped out of it, and left it limp and empty in his hands. Hold him, said Jaffers loudly. Once he gets these things off... Hold him, cried everyone, and there was a rush at the fluttering white shirt, which was now all that was visible of the stranger. 
The shirt sleeve planted a shrew blow in Hall's face that stopped him's open-armed advance and sent him backward into Old Tooth, some of the sexton, and in another moment the garment was lifted up and became convulsed and vacantly flapping about the arms, even at the shirt that is being thrust over a man's head. Jaffers clutched at it and only helped to pull it off. He was struck in the mouth out of the air and incontinently drew his truncheon and smote Teddy Henfrey savagely upon the crown of his head. Look out, said everybody, fencing at the random and hitting at nothing. Hold him, shut the door, don't let him loose, I've got something, here he is, a perfect babble of noises they made. Everybody, it seemed, was being hit all at once. And Sandy Wadgers, knowing as ever and his wits sharpened by a frightful blow in the nose, reopened the door and led the rout. The others, following incontinently, were jammed for a moment in the corner by the doorway. The hitting continued. Phipps, the Unitarian, had a front broken, tooth broken, and Henfrey was injured in the cartilage of his ear. Jaffers was struck under the jaw, and turning, caught at something that intervened between him and Huckster in the melee, and prevented their coming together. He felt a muscular chest, and in another moment the whole mass of struggling, excited men shot out into the crowded hall. "'I got him!' shouted Jaffers, choking and reeling through them all, and wrestling with purple face and swelling veins against his unseen enemy." Men staggered right and left as the extraordinary conflict swayed swiftly towards the house door and went spinning down the half a dozen steps of the inn. Jaffers cried in a strangled voice, holding tight nevertheless, and making play with his knee, spun round, and fell heavily under most his head on the gravel. Only then did his fingers relax. There were excited cries of, Hold him! Invisible! and so forth, and the, a young fellow, a stranger in the place, whose name did not come to light, rushed in at once, caught something, missed his hold, and fell over the constable's prostrate body. Halfway across the road, a woman screamed as something pushed by her. A dog, kicked apparently, yelped and ran howling into Huckster's yard. And with that, the transit of the invisible man was accomplished. For a space, people stood, amazed and gesticulating, and then came panic and scattered them abroad through the village as a gust scatters dead leaves. But Jaffers lay quite still, face upward and knees bent. Chapter 8. In Transit. The eighth chapter is exceedingly brief, and relates that Gibbons, the amateur naturalist of the district, while lying out on the spacious open downs without a soul within a couple of miles of him, as he thought, and almost dozing, heard close to him the sounds of a man coughing, sneezing, and then swearing savagely to himself, and looking, beheld nothing. Yet the voice was indisputable. It continued to swear with that breadth and variety that distinguishes the swearing of a cultivated man. Is that a thing? Apparently, cultivated men swear much better than non uncultivated ones, so keep that notified in your head. It grew to a climax, diminished again, and died away in the distance, going as it seemed to him in the direction of Aderdeen. It lifted to a spasmodic sneeze and ended. Gibbons had heard nothing of the morning's occurrences, but the phenomenon was so striking and disturbing that his philosophical tranquility vanished. He got up hastily and hurried down the steepness of the hill towards the village as fast as he could go. Chapter 9. Mr. Thomas Marvel You must picture Tom Mr. Thomas Marvel as a person of copious, flexible visage, a nose of cylindrical protrusion, a licorice, ample, fluctuating mouth, and a beard of bristling eccentricity. His figure inclined to point and bum point. Okay, time to Google words again. Ambon point. Meaning. That's French. The plump or fleshy part of a human. Okay, no, that's definitely not it. 
It was most commonly used in the early eight in the mid 1800s. It's most often used to describe people of heavy but not unattractive girth. Sure. Okay. Sure. That might as well happen. Where are we? So basically, he's a he's of a heavy weight, but he's not like ugly. Or he's attractive. Is it? Does it say he's just not? Not unattractive. That, okay, that doesn't really tell us much. He's just on, not unattractive, but he's on the heavy side. His short limbs accentuated this inclination. He wore a furry silk hat and the frequent substitution of twine and shoelaces for buttons, apparent at critical points of his costume, marked a man essentially bachelor. Mr. Thomas Marble was sitting with his feet in a ditch, by the roadside over the down towards Aderdeen, about a mile and a half out of Ipping. His feet, save for socks of irregular openwork, were bare, his t- big toes were broad and pricked like the ears of a watchful dog. In a leisurely manner, he did everything in a leisurely manner. Manner. He did everything in a leisurely manner. He was contemplating trying on a pair of boots. They were the soundest boots he had come across for a long time, but too large for him. Whereas the ones he had were, in dry weather, a very comfortable fit, but too thin-soled for damp. Mister Thomas Marble hated roomy shoes, but then he hated damp. He had never properly thought out which he hated most, and it was a pleasant day, and there was nothing better to do. So he put the four shoes in a graceful group on the on the turf and looked at them. And seeing them there, among the grass and spring agrimony, it suddenly occurred to him that both pairs were exceedingly ugly to see. He was not at all startled by a voice behind him. They're boots, anyhow, said the voice. They are charity boots, said Mr. Thomas Marvel, with his head on one side regarding them distastefully. And which is the ugliest pair in the whole blessed universe i'm darned if i know hmm said the voice i've worn worse in fact i've worn none but none so audaciously ugly now if you'll allow the expression i've been catching boots in particular for days besides if i was sick of them because i was sick of them they were sound enough of course but a gentleman on tramp sees a thundering lots of boots and if you'll believe me i've raised nothing in the whole blessed country try as i would put them look at them and a good country for boots, too, in a general way. It's just my promiscuous luck. I've got my boots in this country ten years or more, and then they treat you like this. It's a beast of a country, said the voice, and pigs for people. Ain't it, said Mr. Thomas Marvel. Lord, but them boots, it beats it. He turned his head over his shoulder to right, to look at the boots of his interlocutor. Interlocutor? Interlocutor. How do you pronounce this? We're going to have interlocutor pronunciation. Intralocutor? Sure, okay. Uh, where were we? Right, Mr. Thomas Marble, uh, looking at the boots of his intralocutor, with a view to comparisons, and lo, where the boots of his interlocutor should have been were neither legs nor boots. He turned his head over his shoulder to the left, and there also were neither legs nor boots. He was irradiated by the dawn of a great amazement. Where are ye? said Mr. Thomas Marvel over his shoulder and coming down on all fours. He saw a stretch of empty downs in the wind swaying the remote, green-pointed lurs bushes. "'Am I drunk?' said Mr. Marvel. "'Have I had visions? Was I talking to myself? What the- "'Don't be alarmed,' said the voice. "'None of you retriloquizing me,' said Mr. Thomas Marvel, rising sharply to his face. "'Where are ye? Alarmed indeed.' "'Don't be alarmed,' repeated the voice. "'You'll be alarmed in a minute, you silly fool,' said Mr. Thomas Marvel. "'Where are ye? Let me get my mark on you.' "'Are you buried?' said Mr. Thomas Marvel, after an interval. There was no answer. Mr. Thomas Marvel stood bootless and amazed, his jacket nearly thrown off. Peewit, said a peewit, very remote. 
Pee-wit indeed, said Mr. Travis Marble. This ain't no time for foolery. The down was desolate, east and west, north and south, but the road, with its shallow ditches and white bordering stakes, ran smooth and empty north and south. And, save for that peewit, the blue sky was empty too. So help me, said Mr. Thomas Marvel, shoveling his coat onto his shoulders again. It's the drink I might have known. It's not the drink, said the voice. You keep your nerves steady. Ow, said Mr. Tom Mr. Marvel, and his face grew white amidst the patches. It's the drink, his lips repeated noiselessly. He remained staring about him, rotating slowly backwards. I could have swore I heard a voice, he whispered. Of course you did. It's there again, said Mr. Marvel, closing his eyes and clasping his hand on his brow with a tragic gesture. He was suddenly taken by the collar and shaken violently, and left more days than ever. Don't be a fool, said the voice. I'm off my blooming chump, said Mr. Marvel. It's no good. It's fretted about them blasted boots. I'm off my blessed blooming chump. Or it's the spirits. It's neither one thing nor the other, said the voice. Listen, chump, said Mr. Marvel. One minute, said the voice, penetratingly, tremulous with self-control. Well, said Mr. Thomas Marvel, with a strange feeling of having been dug in the chest by finger. You think I'm just imagination? Just imagination? What else can you be, said Mr. Thomas Marvel, rubbing the back of his neck. Very well, said the voice in a tone of relief. Then I'm going to throw flints at you till you think differently. But where are you? The voice made no answer. Whiz came a flint, apparently out of the air, and missed Mr. Marvel's shoulder by a hair's breadth. Mr. Marvel turning, saw a flint jerk up into the air, trace a complicated path, hang for a moment, and then fling at his feet with almost invisible rapidity. He was too amazed to dodge. Whiz it came, and ricocheted from a bare toe into the ditch. Mr. Thomas Marvel jumped a foot and howled aloud. Then he started to run, tripped over an unseen obstacle, and came head over heels into a sitting position. Now, said the voice, as a third stone curved upward and hung in the air above the tramp, am I imagination? Mr. Marvel, by way of replying, shrugged to his feet and was immediately rolled over again. He lay quiet for a moment. If you struggle any more, said the voice, I shall throw the flint at your head. It's a fair do, said Mr. Thomas Marvel, sitting up and taking his wounded toe in hand and fixing his eye on the third missile. I don't understand it. Stones flinging themselves, stones talking, put yourself down, rot away, I'm done. The third flint fell. It's very simple, said the voice. I'm an invisible man. Tell us something I don't know, said Mr. Marble, gasping in pain. Where you've hid, how you do it, I don't know, I'm beat. That's all, said the voice. I'm invisible, that's what I want you to understand. Anyone can see that, there's no need for you to be so confounded and patient, sir. Now then, give us a notion, how are you hid? I'm invisible. That's the great point, and what I want you to understand is, but whereabouts? Here, six yards in front of you. Oh, come, I ain't blind. You'll be telling me next you're just thin air. I'm not one of your ignorant traps. Yes, I am thin air. You're looking through me. What, ain't there stuff to your fox at? What is this, jabber? Is that it? I am just a human being, solid, needing food and drink, needing covering, too. But I'm invisible. You see, invisible. Simple idea. Invisible. What real life? Yes, real. Let's have a hand of you, said Marvel. If you are real, then it won't be so darn out of the way like then. Lord, he said, how do you make me jump gripping me like that? He felt the hand that had closed around his wrist with his disengaged fingers, and his fingers went timorously up the arm, patted a muscular chest, and explored a bearded face. Marvel's face was astonished. I'm dashed, he said. If this don't be cockfighting, most remarkable. Oh, that's illegal. 
Well, okay, I guess it's 18 whatever. It can't be. It, well, it might still be illegal. Who knows? Actually, when, uh, okay, time to be curious. Legal when? Well, probably we're not in England because we're in Sussex. Cockroach was banned in 1835, uh, and then six years later was banned in Scotland. Where's Sussex? I I like Britain. Let's see where are we? It is. Oh, that's East Sussex. Oh, it, so Sussex Sussex is like the south part because because that's where it is. It's in the south part of Britain on you know in the in the, in the eastern eastern yeah. It's in the south, basically. Uh, where were we? Right, Mr. Miracle. Or Marvel. I mean, it, it's not Mr. Miracle, it's Mr. Marvel, but it's fine. It's fine. Peacock, most remarkable. And there I could see a habit, rabbit be clean through you half a mile away. Not a bit visible of you visible, except... He scrutinized the apparently empty space keenly. You haven't been eating bread and cheese, he asked, holding the invisible arm. You're quite right, and it's not quite assimilated into the system. Ah, said Mr. Marvel, sort of ghostly, though. Of course, all this isn't half is so wonderful as you think. It's quite wonderful enough for my modest wants, said Tom, Mr. Thomas Marvel. How are you managed? How do is it done? It's a too long a story, and besides, I tell you, the whole business fair beats me, said Mr. Marvel. What I want to say at present is this. I need help. I've come to that. I came upon you suddenly. I was wandering, mad with rage, naked, impotent. I could have murdered, and I saw you. Lord, said Mr. Marvel. I came up behind you, hesitated. Went on. Mr. Marvel's expression was eloquent. Then stopped. Sorry, one moment. I'm going to mute that because it's mute that. Here, I said, is an outcast like myself. This is the man for me. And so I turned back and came to you and, Lord, said Mr. Marvel, but I'm all in a dizzy. May I ask, how is it? And what you may be requiring in way of help. Invisible. I want you to help me get clothes and shelter and then with other things. I have left them long enough. If you want, well, but you will, must. Look here, said Mr. Marvel, I'm too flabbergasted. Don't knock me about any more and leave me go. I must get steady a bit. And you've ne pretty near broken my toe. It's all so unreasonable. Empty downs, empty sky, nothing visible for miles except the bosom of nature. And then there comes a voice, a voice out of heaven, and stones and a fist lord. Pull yourself together, said the voice, for you have, a you have to do the job I've chosen for you. Mr. Marvel blew out his cheeks and his eyes were round. I've chosen you, said the voice. You are the only man, except some of those fools down there, who knows that there is such thing as this invisible man. You have to be my helper. Help me, and I will do great things for you. An invisible man is a man of power. He stopped for a moment to sneeze violently. But if you betray me, he said, if you fail to do as I direct you. He paused and tapped Mr. Marvel's shoulder smartly. Mr. Marvel gave a yelp of terror at the torch. I don't want to betray you, said Mr. Marvel, edging away from the direction of the fingers. Don't you go a-thinking that, whatever you do. All I want to do is help you. Just tell me what I got to do, Lord. Whatever you want done, that I'm most willing to do. Uh, we'll go one more chapter, I guess. Because I have to cut out some other stuff where I mess up. How long is this chapter? Not too long. Okay, great. We start on chapter 10. Mr. Marvel's visit to Ipping. After the gusty panic had spent itself, Ipping became argumentative. Skepticism suddenly reared its head. Rather nervous skepticism, not at all assured of its back, but skepticism nevertheless. It is so much easier not to believe in an invisible man. And those who had actually seen him dissolve into the air, or felt the strength of his arm, could be counted on the fingers of two hands. 
and of these, witnesses Mr. Wadgers was presently missing, having retired impregnably behind the bowls, bolts and bars of his own house, and Jaffers was lying stunned in the parlor of the coach and horses. Great and strange ideas transcending experience often have less effect upon men and women than smaller, more tangible considerations. Ipping was gay with bunting, and everybody was in gala dress. Whit Monday had been look looked forward to for a month or more. By the afternoon, even those who believed in the unseen were beginning to resume their little amusements in a tentative fashion, on the supposition that he had quite gone away. And with the skeptics, he was already a jest. But people, skeptics and believers alike, were remarkably sociable that day. all that day. Heyman's meadow was gay with a tent, in which Mrs. Bunting and the other ladies were preparing tea, while, without... The Sunday school children ran races and played games under the noisy guidance of the curate and the Mrs. Cuss and Sackbut. No doubt there was a slight uneasiness in the air, but people, for the most part, had the sense to conceal whatever imaginative qualms they experienced. On the village green, an inclined strong down which the clinging, down which clinging the while to a pulley swung handle, one could be hur hurled violently against a sack at the other end, came in for considerable favor among the adolescents, as also did the swings in the coconut shies. There was also promenading, and the steam organ attached to the swings filled the air with a pungent flavor of oil and equally pungent music. Members of the club who had attended church in the morning were splendid in badges of pink and green, and some of the gayer-minded had also adorned their bowler hats with brilliant colored favors of ribbon. Old Fletcher, whose conceptions of the holiday-making were severe, was visible through the jasmine about his window, or through the open door, whichever way you chose to look, poised delicately on a plank supported on two chairs and whitewashing the ceiling of his front room. About four o'clock, a stranger entered the village for the direction of the downs. He was a short, stout person in an extraordinarily shabby top hat, and he appeared to be very much out of breath. His cheeks were alternately limp and tightly puffed, his mottled face was apprehensive, and he moved with a sort of reluctant alacrity. He turned the corner by the church and directed his way to the coach and horses. Among others, old Fletcher remembers seeing him, and indeed the old gentleman was so struck by this peculiar agitation that he inadvertently allowed a quantity of whitewash to run down the brush into his sleeve of his coat while regarding him. This stranger, to the perceptions of the proprietor of the coconut chai, appeared to be talking to himself, and Mr. Huckster remarked the same thing. He stopped at the foot of the coach and horses, steps, and, according to Mr. Huckster, appeared to undergo a severe internal struggle before he could induce himself to enter the house. Finally, he marched up the steps, and was seen by Mr. Huckster to turn left and they opened the door of the parlor. Mr. Huckster heard voices from within the room, and from the bar appraising the man of his error. That room's private, said Hall, and the stranger shut the door clumsily and went into the bar. In the course of a few minutes, he reappeared, wiping his lips with the back of his hand, with an air of quite a satisfaction that somehow impressed Mr. Huckster as assumed. He stood looking about him for some moment, and then Mr. Huckster saw him walk in an oddly furtive manner towards the gate to the yard, upon which the parlor window, window opened. The stranger, after some hesitation, leant against one of the gate posts to pr produce a short clay pipe and prepared to fill it. His fingers trembled while doing so. He lit it clumsily, and when folding his arms began to smoke in a languid attitude, an attitude which his occasional quick glances up the yard altogether belied. All this Mr. Huckster saw over the canisters of the tobacco window, and the singularity of the man's behavior prompted him to maintain his observation. Presently, the stranger stood up abruptly and put his pipe in his pocket. Then he vanished into the yard. Forthwith, Mr. Huckster, 
conceiving he was witness of some petty larceny, leapt around his corner and ran out into the road to intercept the thief. As he did so, Mr. Marvel reappeared, his hat askew, a big, a big bundle and a blue tablecloth in one hand, and three books tied together, as it proved afterwards with the vicar's braces in the other. Directly, he saw Mr. Husk Huckster, he gave a sort of gasp, and turning sharply to the left, began to run. Stop, thief! cried Mr. Huckster, and set off after him. Mr. Huckster's sensations were vivid but brief. He saw the man just before him, spurting briskly for the church corner in the hill road. He saw the village flags and festivities beyond, and he saw a face or two or turn towards or so turn towards him. He bawled, stop, again. He had hardly gone ten strides before his shin was caught in some mysterious fashion. He was no longer running, but flying with inconceivable rapidity through the air. He saw the ground suddenly close to his face. The world seems to sp seemed to splash into a million whirling specks of light, and subsequent proceedings interested him no more. And that was chapter 10. So I've gotten through chapter 6 through 10, and we're now on page 91 of... Uh, we're going to find out how many pages. Let's see how much further we go. Uh, skip, skip, skip. Uh, I guess I could just go like that. Uh, oh, there we are. That's all the chapters. So we're on chapter 10, which is that one. Oh, wait, no, on that one. Okay, we're actually, sorry, on chapter 11, which is in the coach and horses. We haven't read it yet, though. And it goes, we're, and that's page 80, uh, starts on page 87. Oh, no. Oh, that's weird, because it's slightly off. Okay, that's fair enough. There we are, page 91, and there's approximately 268 pages, with, and that gets counting the epilogue, so we've got some time before we make it to the end, but that's where I'm going to end it now, because that's almost another hour. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening, I hope it didn't sound too terrible, we'll find out how it was when I edit it, but we'll see, um, I hope my voice wasn't complete garbage, I apologize for any random noises you may have heard that was probably my phone because i didn't silence it like an idiot otherwise yeah i hope you all have a good day night evening whatever and sayonara <laughs>